0: listeners, I'm Joni B. Cole, host of Author Can I Ask You. For people like me who love books and the stories behind the books, this show gives me the chance to ask authors about what they write and why they write. Plus, I like to throw in a few odd questions just to get to know each author a little bit better as a person. Let's get started and meet today's guest. Today I welcome Robert Kerbeck, author of the just-released memoir, Ruse, Lying the American Dream from Hollywood to Wall Street. Ruse offers an insider look at a young man trying to make it as an actor, but for better or worse becomes one of the best corporate spies in the business. Forward Reviews wrote this about Ruse. The book is gripping. The details of Kerbeck's sleuthing work are meticulous, but the book still maintains the thrill of a spy novel. Celebrity name drops add flair to this tale of calculated crimes. Welcome, Robert, to Author, Can I Ask You? You wrote quite the humdinger of a book, and that is not a ruse, I promise you.
1: (laughs) Well, thank you, Joni. Thanks for having me.
0: So, Robert, you are a multi-talented guy, for sure. Acting, writing, and, of course, grifting, which is much of the subject of ruse, Can you share some backstory about how you followed your acting dream to Hollywood, but somehow you ended up one of the stars in the world of corporate espionage instead?
1: Obviously, that was not in the plan. Um, (laughs) My family were automobile dealers. Uh, My great-grandfather sold horse carriages before cars were invented, and uh, he had the foresight to switch to automobiles in the early 1900s. And so growing up, uh, car sales was just in my blood, and I was expected to take over the business. I was the oldest kid. And when I graduated college, um, where I was an English major at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, I did go and work for my father, and I just didn't feel comfortable with car sales. Um, It just wasn't for me, and um, I kind of struggled with some of the dishonesty around sales, and I had... Caught the acting bug in college and so I really wanted to try acting and so I decided to go to New York and make my way and of course I needed a survival job. I didn't have the patience to be a waiter. I wasn't a late night kind of guy so I couldn't be a bartender and a buddy of mine had this strange job which he would not tell me the details about and I went and basically got hired uh, really not even knowing what the job was and then of course I found out that it was this corporate spying And so here I was not wanting to uh, be a car salesman because of the dishonesty. And I end up stumbling into a job as a corporate spy where the dishonesty was far greater.
0: God, the irony. Tell me a little bit about your acting life. I mean, when I read the book, you actually had success in acting. What were some of the highlights on your Hollywood reel?
1: I think the highlights are not on the Hollywood reel. The highlights were the theater work that I did. And, of course, if you look me up on IMDb and you see all these TV and film credits, but, you know, the theater credits aren't on there. Um, and those are the ones I'm most proud of. I did a lot of great, great plays. One in particular, I did this play off Broadway, which was a big hit. And I was the lead opposite a young Callista Flockhart. Oh, wow. um, and our play was so successful, they were trying to move it to Broadway. But Callista got hired to do the Glass Menagerie on Broadway. And Because Callista was so fantastic in the role and so pivotal, we postponed moving the play to Broadway, hoping to wait for The Glass Menagerie maybe to not have a super long run, because as you know, Broadway shows, they never know, you know, does it run a week? Does it run a year? And of course, Callista's performance was incredible. The show was a huge hit and Glass Menagerie ran. And this play that we were in was called Bobber Boys. Um, It was set in Scotland and it never happened. It never moved to Broadway. But it was a heck of a play. We got a rave review in The New Yorker. And, uh, you know, I I hope that one day I can get a book reviewed in The New Yorker and maybe I'll be one of the only actors who, you know, I I got reviewed as an actor and as a writer. (laughs)
0: You never know. Well, don't you hate it when you're an actor and you had these dramatic roles in the stage work and then everyone's like wait aren't you the guy that shot george clooney on sisters or whatever
1: <laughs> yeah exactly exactly which i did do i i think i think even worse than that i wouldn't mind people coming up to me and saying hey i saw you in sisters you killed george clooney i think the hardest thing is people go hey aren't you the guy that was in star trek that played the cardassian
0: There you go. Well, I want to get back to corporate spying as well. But I do have to bring up one more thing related to acting. And you're probably not going to like this. But later in the book, I love when one of the people you're working for, just a peach of a guy, he keeps calling you the Brad Pitt of the search world. Can you Hmm. explain why he gave you that nickname?
1: (laughs) Uh, Well, he did it accidentally. He had no idea that I had read for Thelma and Louise. Not only had I read for Thelma and Louise, but according to my agent, it went down to the wire uh, between me and Brad Pitt. And obviously the director and producers of Thelma and Louise made the right choice hiring (laughs) Brad Pitt. Um, You know, of course, at the time I was just like, oh, well, yeah, I was close on that movie. And then of course the movie came out and the movie became a, Huge hit, and and it basically uh, propelled you know Brad Pitt's career, and so eventually after the crash of two thousand and eight, when my rusing career kind of stopped on a dime because there was no business being done, there was no commerce being done because the world economy had cratered. Um, I needed a job because there was no spying anymore. There was no money from spying, and I actually had to take a job in corporate America. And I went to work for this executive recruiting firm. And pretty much, I think it was on my first day, the guy that I was going to be working directly under introduced me to the whole new team in the conference room as the Brad Pitt of the search world. He had no idea, and it was pretty amazing that I mean, he obviously somehow was a very intuitive guy, um, and uh, that he he somehow Connected the dots there. I have no idea how he did it, but, uh, it was definitely, uh, it kind of hit me in the gut because, you know, it really took me back to the career that I had wanted to have. And it's not that I wasn't a successful actor, but, you know, to keep it going. And, you know, I mean, I worked as an actor for over a decade. I had an agent for over a decade. I have a pension from the screen actors guild. I mean, I did a lot of things, but to work and have a career You need to basically get a TV series that is successful. And that was something that I was close, but it never happened.
0: So here you are kind of ambushed or waylaid into this career that you are very, very good at as a corporate spy. Can you describe a day in the life of what you did in that role?
1: Yeah, so basically... We all know that the Russians spy on the Chinese and the Chinese spy on the Russians. But what most people don't know and are quite shocked by is that major American corporations are spending hundreds of millions, if not billions of of dollars a year, to spy on each other. And of course, they can't hire somebody that works directly for them to spy on their competitor. They have to hire somebody outside so that they have some plausible deniability that, oh my gosh, if Robert were to get caught, we had no idea that Robert was yeah. doing that. Oh, we never would have hired Robert to do that. And meanwhile, every corporation in America, and maybe not every, let's just say 99.9% are hiring people to do this every single day.
0: Hmm. Would you read a small passage from Ruse? Maybe just sure, a sure. little or two? want to give readers or listeners a flavor of the book. Sure. So there's a little bit of a
1: prologue. And then this is chapter one, opening of chapter one. And the chapter title is called The Biggest Lie. If I told you that you could make millions of dollars and all you had to do was lie on the phone all day to earn it, would you do it? Could you do it? You'd probably start by asking if it was illegal. And if so, how illegal? Good for you. You have some kind of conscience. Note that as I flatter you, I'm not answering your question. Or maybe you'd think, shit, what's the harm in finagling a few names out of corporations anyway? After all, Goldman Sachs, Wells Fargo, and the like don't care about us. They've shown repeatedly and remorselessly that they're not terribly concerned about bilking consumers or tanking the global economy. Who cares if they get dinged a little? While you're pondering that, I'll point out that the job has some serious perks beyond the money. For one thing, you can ruse from anywhere in the world. Your car, the beach, your bed or basement or backyard surf shack, Monte Carlo, the rainforests of Costa Rica. Over the years, I've rused from London, Paris, the QE2. Those phone calls in the middle of the Atlantic are expensive, Hawaii, even the boardrooms of Wall Street firms while waiting to meet with their CEOs. All you need is a phone, and you can ruse as much or as little as you like. It's up to you.
0: <laughs> that is a teaser and a half. You know, I can so visualize you in your surf shack you know, with your feet up barefoot on your desk and rusing these corporate giants. So, you know, at one point you write in Ruse that you're interviewing for new recruits for the spying gig and you called the process Liars Boot Camp. And of course, you've just been talking about liars. So tell me, how can I become a good liar?
1: Ah, well, I think that in all of the years that I had this job, while I didn't tell many people, I didn't tell most people what I did, because obviously I wouldn't be a very good spy if I was telling people that I was a spy. But you know, my closest friends knew what I did, and every single one of them wanted to try to do the job, wanted to do the job, because who wouldn't want to do a job? You could work from home. And of course, remember, nowadays we're living in this world of COVID where everything is home. But. You know, uh, until COVID, it was very hard to have a job where you could work remotely, let alone a job you could set your own hours and make a lot of money, right? So everybody wanted to try this job. So I would give these friends an opportunity. I'd bring them in, and most didn't last an hour. And it was never the ethical question. It was the actual inability to lie successfully, lie repeatedly over the phone in a way that you were able to convince these very smart people working at major corporations, that you were someone that you were not, and that you were entitled to get information about the inner workings of these major corporations. So, I think the answer to that is, is I don't think I can do that. You know, I think lying and the ability to lie and the ability to tell a story is sort of innate. Um, hmm. And I think if someone has it, I could probably develop it much like maybe let's say a writer, you know, Stephen King in his wonderful book on the craft of writing, you know, he says that if you read his book and you're not a good writer, he's not going to make you a, a good writer. He's not going to make you a great writer. But if you're a good writer, he can make you a very good writer. If you're a very good writer, he can make you a great writer. Like he can, he can bring you up a level, right? Uh, but he's not taking you from zero to a hundred. And I think that's kind of true with the ruse job. There were a few people that came in that had the gift of gab and the bullshitting gene and those people i was able to show the way but i mean literally i could count those people on one hand.
0: Hmm. You yeah, have a new meaning to that expression born liar. Yes. <laughs> when you were spying for corporate clients and you were making good money at it but where did you put this admittedly quasi illegal work? Where did it fall in terms of your own conscience?
1: Oh, uh, that's a great question. I think, you know, First off, for much of the book, doing the spying and making very, very little money, right? Um, When I first got the job, I was working for this woman that had a firm, and she was a very, very um, talented businesswoman in a time where being a businesswoman on Wall Street in the corporate world was not easy. And She was very good at it, but she was tough, and she did not pay us very well. Where else were we going to go? You know, we didn't know of any other corporate spy firms. So we didn't make a lot of money. And that was for quite a lot of the time of this rusing career is I wasn't making very much money. I was really focused on being an actor. And I think that's how I rationalized that was, you know, this is just a survival job. Uh, most of the information we were getting, you know, if I had to describe what I did in one sentence, I would say I was LinkedIn before LinkedIn was invented. But before that, if you wanted to find out the inner workings of a corporation, who was on a team, what the organization of the team was, who did exactly what, who were the rock stars on those teams. So for example, if it was a team of salespeople, who were the top three salespeople? If it was a team of traders, who were the top three traders? If they were wealth managers, who had the biggest books of business, right? And all of that data is really, really valuable to corporations who want to steal the best people right who want to poach the employees from their competitors they don't want to hire the guy or the, the gal who's number 19 of 20 on the list they want to hire number 2 number 3 number 1 right and so the information that i was getting was for that purpose and so i rationalized a lot of that as well you know at the end of the day i'm stealing this information through dishonest means but people are getting better jobs out of it and you know, the line that I drew was I never used, first of all, I never used, even though there were times I, I learned things about deals, um, I never did any insider trading, I never ever one time bought any stock on information that I learned, because for me, I knew that not only did I not want to do that, you know, my job went from being in the dark gray to for sure crossing the line into the dangerously illegal um. Um, you know, we read about people going to jail for insider trading all the time. And so I was never going to do that. And then also, I think that I never used the ruse skills in my personal life. Right?
0: That was going to be my next question. How did that being a liar for a living in a way impact your real relationships, your friends, your family, your own ability Mm -hmm. to trust people?
1: I was really conscious of, you know, that I didn't want to you know, like, I, you know, what couldn't I find out? Right. What, what couldn't I find out about my neighbor? What couldn't I find out about the the guy that, you know, did something uh, that I didn't like or, you know, you know what what I, I could find out anything about anybody, you know, um, And I didn't want to do that. I said, look, this is what I'm doing for this job. And of course, you know, for many, many years, it was because it was just my survival job until I made it as an actor, right? Um, And so that was a line, again, that I drew and I stuck with, which I wasn't going to use the rusing in my personal life.
0: That was your Rubicon. Let's switch gears, because I know that before you wrote Ruse, you were a writer for many years. And in fact, your previous book, Malibu Burning, was a really powerful account of the worst wildfire in Los Angeles history. That was, oh, that was so terrifying how close you came to losing your own home and your life. I mean, you've also published uh, stories and essays. And I think I'm correct in saying one was adopted into a short film. But I want to know when or why did you feel compelled to start writing? You know, here's another whole different career path for you.
1: Yeah. So, you know, I was an English major in college, much to my father's chagrin. And I just didn't have the ability as a young person to sit still, you know, to sit behind a desk. And so that's how I kind of got into the theater. And and I really love the theater. And so I really never did any writing for, you know, many, many years. And it was only until my world fell apart after the crash of 2008. And I had to take this job at this um, major executive recruiting firm. And the lying is far worse face-to-face in corporate America than mm-hmm. it was in my rousing, you know, in my little rusing surf shack. Uh, <laughs> it really was staggering to me that people would tell lies right to your face. And, and many times they would tell lies right to your face, even though they knew you knew they were lying. God. Um, it was just incredible. Um, and because that was my first job in corporate America, and I was no kid when I got that job, it just shocked me. It just shocked me at the amount of Subterfuge and backstabbing and politics and lying, you know, it took the wind out of my sails in terms of believing in the human race and believing in mm. people being good. And so, I was doing this job, I hated the job. They wanted to buy my spying business, and then at the end, they reneged on that and they just re- reneged on all the offers they had told me. And so, basically, that job just kind of disappeared. And I was glad it disappeared. And then, of course, I had no job, there was no spying, I had a mortgage, I had bills, I had a child, I have a wife. And uh, things looked pretty bleak there for a while. And I just one day sat down and I basically wrote a suicide note. Um, But it wasn't my suicide. It was this character that had been in my head. And uh, I wrote this note. And I showed it to an actor friend and, uh, you know, he said, this is great. You need to write a book about this character. Um, And this is this carpet con man. And so I started to write this story about this guy and the book was terrible. Quite (laughs) frankly, it was a terrible book. I wrote it in the notes program on my iPad. No grammar, no punctuation, you know, uh, every other word misspelled. But there was something about the story that was compelling and even more than compelling, even though it was fiction, it was true, right? Because I was writing it from my personal angst of what I was going through. So I just, I said, well, you know what, how do you, as a writer, how do you fix something that you know has got potential? How do you fix it? How do you improve it, right? Don't I need somebody to look at this and help me with this? And So I started a writer's group um, and I started this writer's group, the Malibu Writer Circle in 2012, kind of when I was at the bottom in my personal life. And I started writing and um, it took a couple of years. I went to some writers conferences. I went to Iowa. I went to Tin House. I went to Bread Loaf and I started to write short stories. And really to my shock, they started to get published and they all got published.
0: Maybe this is a silly question, but which do you think is harder on your ego to break into acting or to break into writing? I think to break into acting.
1: I think acting is harder. I like writing much more. And of course, it's easy for me to say that now, but I do like it a lot more. Uh, You know, the story of that short film you mentioned, it's called Reconnected. It was based on a short story I wrote. And this director one day emailed me and said, hey, I read your short story. And I loved it. I think it would make a great film. Can I make a movie out of it? And, you know, I, at first I thought it was maybe typical kind of Hollywood BS. But, you know, I looked this woman up. She had a Wikipedia page. And she'd done some really amazing work. And um, so we collaborated on the screenplay and uh, raised money. And we were ready, getting ready to shoot. And I said, hey, you know, my kid is an actor. And I'd like to, him to play the boy in this part in the movie. Because I based it on my son anyway. And I said, can he audition? She said, sure. So she meets him and she says, Oh, he's perfect. Perfect. He's going to be the kid. And she said, okay, I I have one condition for you now, since your son is playing the kid in this, I want you to play the father. (laughs) And I said, no, 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 no. I don't act. I haven't acted in in 10 years. I don't want to ruin my own movie. (laughs) And, uh, but she would not take no for an answer. And of course my child wanted me to do it too, right? To act with your kid, you know, what could be better than that? And so, so yeah, so I did it. And what I was amazed by was I hadn't acted in all these years. And I I think because I didn't care so much anymore and and not, not care in terms of the quality of what I was doing, but in care, in terms of any result, like, Oh, well, this was going to make me get on this TV show or this, whatever. I I didn't want to act. Right. And this movie turned out to be the best thing I'd ever done on camera. I was nominated at the Madrid International Film Festival for best actor and the film won multiple awards. And, you know, I think that was really wonderful, but I didn't want to go back to that. Acting is hard. When you get rejected as an actor, somehow it seems much more personal. And I think because writing, you know, we're behind a desk, we're in a room, we shoot off our submissions via email nowadays, whereas acting, and I know it's changed now, you know, a lot of acting now because of COVID people do self-tape. They put themselves on tape in their home and then they send the tape off. But that's only a really recent thing that's happened for the most part as an actor. You go into a room, you walk in front of a director and a producer and a casting dir- agent, and you read the material and they sit there stone-faced and they go, thank you. And you walk out and you go, oh, God. Ah. brutal, brutal. Right? Oh, so man. I I think, I think acting in terms of the personal rejection element is harder.
0: Well, it's not easy in any realm, but I hear what you're saying. Robert, I have one more question for you, which is if you were to write another memoir, this one, just six words, what would it be? (laughs) Oh, that's
1: good. You got me because I was going, I was just going to say, Ruse, Lying the American Dream from Hollywood to Wall Street. No, no, Uh, no, that's (laughs) (laughs) cheating. If it was a six word memoir, The Transition Project. Hmm.
0: Well, that's a memoir that will have long legs because aren't we always in transition, but you more than most, I think. (laughs) Robert, I know Ruse is about corporate spying and lying, but it's been really nice getting to know you beyond the pages of your book because I just appreciate your warmth and the generosity that you shared in writing that book. So thank you so much for this time and being on my podcast.
1: Oh, well, thank you for the support and for the kind words. They mean a lot to me. I think the book is really about hustling and scrapping and the mistakes we make, right? And the things we learn along the way. So I hope that people, they see that the lying part of my life is long in the kind of rearview mirror, but I also wanted to share that because I just thought it was an element of our world that nobody really has ever seen on the page.
0: Listeners, be sure to check out Robert Kerbeck's fascinating new memoir, Ruse touted as an irresistible portrait of actors and grifters in the workaday world of corporate espionage. For more information, visit robertkerbeck.com. So that's it for this episode of Author, Can I Ask You? Thanks everybody for listening. And if you like what you heard, please spread the word and visit me on my website, joanibcole.com. In the meantime. Take care, act civil, and don't be afraid to ask the odd questions.